Probably this past week, you made a few purchases, I'm guessing. And when retailers, manufacturers are trying to get you to buy their stuff, they often will create commercials that accentuate the value of their product. Rayovac claims that if you buy one of their flashlights, it's indestructible. Can you imagine that? It's an indestructible flashlight. Glad, glad garbage bags apparently are also indestructible. Now, we know they're, they're not really indestructible, but one of the ways that manufacturers and retailers will get you to buy their product is if they can convince you that it's, it's indestructible, or at least it'll, it'll outlast the competition. And in fact, it's true. There are some products that are better than others. But what we know, we know this from life experience. We know this from history. We know this from the word of God. Nothing in the created order is eternal. Nothing in the created order is indestructible. Everything you've ever seen, touched, purchased will eventually perish, including our own bodies. None of us are indestructible. Teenage boys think they are. But none of us are, in fact, indestructible. The only indestructible one is God. God has existed eternally. He existed before time began. He exists in the present, and he will exist into the future forever and forever and forever. And we see his indestructibility. We see his power over death and disease and destruction in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only one, the only one, who by the power of God conquered death and the grave while being innocent of death and sin's consequences. Jesus Christ lives. Now here's where this becomes very practical for you and for me. Not only is that a a cosmic truth, but it's meant to have an, an effect on you, on the way you think, on the way that you feel, on your future. See, good theology always leads to praxology, meaning that truth leads to practice. So we don't just get up in front of you on Sunday morning and dump the truth on and say, okay, now you know more, go on your merry way. When you encounter the truth of God's word, it's meant to transform you in some way, shape, or form. And the indestructibility of our God in Christ is really, really important. It has some practical implications. You see, in Christ, all that is corrupted by sin can be made new, including you. All that is corrupted by sin can be made new, including you. This is Resurrection Sunday's grand theme. So if your emotions aren't quite stable, those can be corrected in Christ. If you live in fear, anxiety, stress, you look at the world around you, like what in the world is going on? That fear can be transformed into faith. The anxiety, the stress can be transformed into hope. Your alienation from God can be corrected through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of being his enemy, you can become his friend. This is what Jesus accomplished by dying for us. How how can that be? Join me in John chapter 20. This is the fourth gospel. In John chapter 20, like the other gospels, there is an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it begins this way in John chapter 20, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. So this is what we would call a Sunday in our language, 
came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What we're going to see here is a transformation from death to delight. A transformation from death to delight. She went there to commemorate a tragic death, an atrocious death, a horrendous death, but it ends in delight for her. Her anxiety, her stress, her mourning, her emotional angst will be satisfied and cured and solved when she sees the risen Christ. Sadness, we know, has been the dominant motif over this first Easter weekend. Jesus Christ was cruelly crucified by Roman soldiers at the bequest of the Jewish hierarchy on Friday. His body was quickly taken off the cross so these hypocrites could get back to celebrating the Sabbath and keeping with their Sabbath laws. They just executed an innocent man, but they wanted to make sure they had their festivals down. So they have his body removed from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Christ, offers to have Jesus' body put in his tomb. And the disciples would have mourned through that Saturday and into those evening hours, but the sun was about to come up. And on this third day, three women appear at the tomb of Christ. The first people to appear at the tomb of Christ were women. Now, this may not strike you as particularly unusual because we live in an egalitarian culture. But this was a patriarchal culture. Men were dominant in all spheres of life. Women were considered of lesser significance. So the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has three women appear at his tomb. And if you look at the resumes, if you will, of these three women, they were one was a social outcast and the two were socially unknown. Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute, a former prostitute. And yet she's the one with this heart, this devotion for Christ. By Jewish law, she wasn't permitted to go visit the tomb on Friday night, or Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. But when the sun was coming up on the dawn of that first day of the week, now the Sabbath laws permitted her to go to the tomb of Christ. And the very first thing on her checklist, the thing that was of greatest priority for her was to go and mourn her savior. It shows the heart change that had taken place within her from a woman that had given herself to sexual promiscuity, who was now giving her heart to the Lord. With her, we, we, it's not recorded in this particular gospel, but it's recorded in the gospel of Mark and others. There were two other women, an unknown Mary and another woman, Salome, who was the mother of James and John. We don't know where James and John were, but we do know there were three socially insignificant, according to culture, women present. And as with most women, when they gather in groups, they brought their perfume along. They wanted to pour liquid spices on Christ. In Mark chapter 16, verse one, it says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome bought spices. They bought perfume. So the reason why they would do that in our culture, when a person dies, they're put in a casket, goes into a concrete vault normally, and we're buried in the ground and that's it. You don't dig the body up again. But in the Jewish culture, your body would be put in a tomb until all the flesh decayed. It would be laden with 
probably over 120 pounds of spices, some people tell us, in order to alleviate any smell in the surrounding area. After all, it's a hot, arid climate. And once the body had deteriorated after a year or so, the stone would be rolled aside and the, the bones would be collected up and they'd be put in an ossuary box and then permanently interred. Here, Jesus is only three days in the grave and they wanted to show their love for Christ by coming and pouring liquid spices on his body. This is an act of love, much like Joseph of Arimathea's act of love when he offered to have his tomb given for Christ, much like you might do in the modern era if someone dies and you go to their grave and you place flowers on their tomb. You don't do it because they're going to benefit from it. They can't smell them, see them, but it's a, it's a way of honoring the deceased. Priority number one for the two Marys in Salome was to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, an act that was forbidden on the Sabbath, but that they quickly get to on that early Sunday morning. There was one thing, however, that stood in the way, and that was the weight of the stone. When we were kids and we looked through our little storybooks, it generally showed this giant round spherical stone put in front of the, the grave. But in actual fact, they generally were more like a hockey puck. They would be rolled in a trough in front of the tomb for a period of a year or so. And in order to go in and keep adding spices, you'd need several men to be able to roll that away. So these women probably were hoping that maybe the gardener would be there or one of the Roman soldiers would be there. But when they get to the grave, they discover the stone's been rolled aside. The narrative continues this way. She sees the empty grave. So what does she do? So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple who would be John. John never names himself in his gospel, but he is called the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus had a special affection and affinity for John. And he said to them, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter, now who's Peter, by the way? And what was Peter doing three days earlier? Um, we love to throw Judas under the bus for betraying Christ. But Peter denied him in public three times to save his own neck. So you can imagine Peter's probably been wallowing in some regret and some anxiety. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, he doesn't like to brag, but he was faster than Peter. He outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. Now, by the way, this is notable because very rarely in the scriptures is a Jewish man ever depicted as running unless he's running to carry a message in battle. It was considered undignified for an adult Jewish man to run. I mean, it's not unlike our culture. You see little kids running around the church. You generally don't see older men running around the church. It's kind of weird, right? This is significant if you look at Luke 15, when the prodigal son returns, he's coming across a field, he squandered his father's wealth and his father runs to him. This is a symbol of the, the embarrassment, the stigma that, the, that God the father subjects himself, to in, subjects himself to in seeking out the sinner. He runs to his son. 
The more poised thing to do would be, I will wait here. My son can come to me, but he runs. Here we see Peter and John casting aside their concern for what people would think. It demonstrates their eagerness to see what was going on. And they run to the tomb of Christ. So they get to the tomb, verse five, stooping down, they look and they saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter is always portrayed as a little more rash, a little more brash, kind of a tough guy. So he, he jets into the tomb. He, he saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So the guys go in, they explore the evidence. Jesus is clearly not there. So they leave. But Mary remains. Women tend to be more affected on an emotional level by unexpected trying circumstances. There's nothing wrong with that. But they go, they go away, and Mary is left there in her mourning. And it says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, the tomb that the two disciples were just in. No one else was in there. But now all of a sudden, she saw two angels in white, which symbolizes purity, sitting where the body of Christ had lain, one in the head, one in the feet totally relaxed. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, have they not taken away my Lord? And I do not know where they have laid him. Here we have a weekend of sadness. Now, it's, now there's some astonishment. And then she digresses back into sadness as she feels hopeless unable to offer something to the man that had loved her and treated her well. Keep in mind that Mary was used to men seeking her out for other purposes, if you know what I mean. Supposedly loving her, but actually just lusting after her. But in Christ, she found true, pure, righteous love and affection. She had been forgiven of her trespasses and sins. She had a righteous love and affection for Christ, but now she couldn't see him. She couldn't find him. And so she remains in the tomb. But soon that's going to be turned to joy as the, the rock is rolled away by the rock of ages. The Lord God comes and he rolls the rock away and the indestructible Messiah emerges with a message of comfort and reassurance. And this is all a wonderful picture because what are angels they are God's ministering servants, God's heavenly messengers. Do they look rattled? Do they look shaken? There's no record here of them chewing on their fingernails or being worried. Heaven is at peace. The sovereign God is in charge. His ministering servants are doing his bidding. They're not rattled. They're not frazzled by the events of Jesus' crucifixion. They're actually seated calmly by the tomb highlighting the work of divinity and the sovereignty of God over the nastiness of life. 
They're dressed in white robes, symbolizing purity. And they very calmly ask Mary, why are you crying? Why are you crying? It might seem kind of callous. Someone's at a funeral, someone loses a loved one, and you say, well, what are you crying about? It's not like that. It's a genuine question to set her up for the biggest surprise of her life. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? He asked the same questions the angels asked her. Whom are you seeking? Well, supposing him to be the gardener, and by the way, he is, he is the gardener. He, he created this world. He created the garden within which we were originally placed. He is the one that tends to the cattle on a thousand hills. He is, the, he is the, the ultimate gardener, but she doesn't recognize him as Christ for a moment. So she says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And what does Jesus say? This is, this is pretty cool. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all he says. Just calls her by her name. And in that moment, she's stabilized. She sees him for who he is. You've probably experienced this on a lesser level. You're in a crowd, people are talking, there's all kinds of voices. Someone says, Aaron, and your head goes, there's something personal about that. There's something that you're automatically attracted to someone who is using your name. It stabilizes you in the cacophony of sounds around you. Aaron, it's time for dinner, whatever it might be. Mary, he says, and her weeping subsides. Now, perhaps it was the tears in her eyes that caused her not to recognize Christ at first. Maybe it was the shock of the moment. Maybe it was because she was flustered. Perhaps it was light in her face. Maybe it was God delaying the surprise. We don't know. But at first, Mary did not recognize him, but then everything comes into focus when she hears the one that spoke her into existence speak her name, speak a word of hope to her, speak a word of life to her. In fact, this is the trajectory of the gospel, right? From death to life. The maker of the universe created us, spoke us into existence through the power of his word as part of the created order. Speaks a word of judgment on us because of our sin. When we declare him by faith to be our Lord and Savior, he speaks eternal life to us. He declares us to be rescued and saved and redeemed by the blood of the eternal son. So we have a transition now from death to life. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, in Hebrew, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers. I love how he calls his disciples, his brothers. He is our Lord. He is our King. But the wonderful thing about our God is he's also a friend. He's also our brother. He fully shares our humanity. We are co-heirs to the inheritances of his eternal kingdom, which he has secured by his blood. He says, go to them and say, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things 
to her. Now, I suspect that most people in this room have heard the Easter story before. I'm going to assume that most of you have. When you read something time and time again and hear it time and time again, especially when we circle a date in the calendar and say, this is the date we're going to dedicate to remembering the resurrection of Christ, it's easy to sort of be like, oh, I was expecting a sermon like this today. I read this before. I've heard this before. It's, it's old hat. It's, it's great, but it's, it hasn't really gripped my heart or my mind. Well, it's helpful at times for us to, to enter into the narrative. Picture yourself there. Put yourself in Mary's sandals. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You may have sinned worse than her. You may have sinned less than her, but you're a sinner and I'm a sinner by nature. And we, we have found this one. We followed him. We found life. We found acceptance. We found forgiveness. And all of a sudden he's put to death in a cruel death on a Roman cross. He's in the grave. The least we could do is go and visit his grave. We show up and he's not there. But then he is. And the first person, I want to emphasize this, the very first person in all of human history to see the risen Christ is a former prostitute, a woman in a patriarchal culture. Not the king, not the chief priest, not Pilate, not some uppity-up professor. A former prostitute. This, this is an incredible thing that Jesus' first revelation of himself post-resurrection is to a former prostitute. It's an amazing picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus truly has come to seek and save the lost. Now, I had a guy ask me a couple months ago, I was having a conversation with, he's a journalist actually. And he said to me, he, he knew that I'd talked about evil in culture. And he said, well, do you think I'm evil? And, and I, I knew where he was going with this. He, he was doing what most, it's a comparison, right? Because you think evil, oh, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, that's evil. I, I, you know, I do some wrong, but I'm not evil. And I said to him, yes, you are evil. And so am I by nature. All people are. See, God doesn't grade on a curve, folks. That's false religion. God doesn't grade on a curve. His standards are 100% perfection or you fail. It's pass or fail. It's not A, A minus, C plus, F. No, it's not that. It's if you do not score 100% on the test, you will not enter into his eternal kingdom. Well, how many of us can do that? Zero. <laughs> Zero. So he has to write the test for us. He has to pay the fine for us. He has to be sacrificed for us. And his righteousness, his report card is then given to you. Your name is put on it. His righteousness is applied to you by faith. That's how a person is saved. You can tell false religion from biblical Christianity. Every false religion in the world teaches the exact same thing. That you somehow have to impress yourself into nirvana. Or be reincarnated through a series of life cycles till you get it right. 
or attend the right church and avail yourself of the sacraments. And maybe at the end of the day, you'll get into heaven. That's all smoke and mirrors. It's a lie. It's a lie. Only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to forgive us of our trespasses and sins. And it's amazing how simple that is and how many people buck that message. It just can't be true. It can't be that simple. It's gotta be me. I'm better than that person. I didn't do what they did. The first person to see the resurrected Christ was an ex-prostitute. We read about this in, in Genesis. It's always the unexpected that receives a special measure of God's grace. And it's there for a reason. It's the youngest brother, not the oldest brother in a culture that venerated the older brother. It's the younger brother. It's the unexpected. It's, it's the prostitute Rahab. It's the prostitute Tamar. It's Bathsheba's baby. It's Mary Magdalene. It's the outcast. It's the one you wouldn't expect. It's the little shepherd boy, the youngest of the pack out in the field that becomes the Davidic king. All of this points us away from self and the desire we have to somehow take credit for our salvation and reminds us that it's the grace of God. If God doesn't say, Aaron, I'm damned. Until God calls us by name, until he reveals himself to us, we are without hope in this world. Here we have this transition from life, from death to life. She's there, dark weekend, picture it. She's distressed and God calls her by name. The angels were the first supernatural beings to observe what no human eye observed. But here, now he reveals himself to Mary. He is risen. How important are those words, would you say, in the timeline of human history? He is risen. Scale of one to 10. Important, mildly important, incredibly important. These three words are the central, form the central tenant of the Christian faith. The central tenant of the Christian faith is a resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have a resurrection, you don't have a Christian faith. You could have something called Christianity, but it's no different than false religions. Had Jesus died and stayed dead, we'd be just like Buddhists, just the different message, different rituals. We'd be just like Hindus, just like atheists. You see, if you are an adherent to the Islamic religion, you can venerate Muhammad. He lived, he died, and he's still dead. You can follow Buddhism or other Eastern religions. You might even find some interesting thoughts from some of these leaders. They lived, they died, and guess where they are today? They're still dead. Christianity has a resurrection narrative, and it's historically factual. He did not stay dead, and therefore he can pass that life that he secured through his resurrection onto us so that we, everyone who is born once, dies twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. That's the way it works. If you're born into Christ, you experience physical death, but not spiritual death. 
So here we have this V in the scriptures. Good Friday is like the downward side of the V where things are getting darker and darker and worse and worse. And Jesus is abandoned and alone and ultimately dies and goes into a borrowed tomb. But the resurrection catapults us out of the other side of the V back into a life, a destiny, a journey toward his heavenly kingdom. Christians have celebrated this since, since the time of Christ and will continue to do it until Jesus Christ comes back. In dying, Jesus conquered the penalty of sin and retreads, regenerates, and renews, and recommissions lost people for his service. John of Damascus lived 1,400 years ago or so, and he, he wrote a poem about the triumph of Christ and could just as well have been written yesterday. It's the old, old story. Here's what he said in his poem. The day of resurrection, question mark, earth, tell it out abroad, the Passover of gladness, the Passover of God. From death to life eternal, from this world to the sky, our Christ has brought us over with hymns of victory. Now let the heavens be joyful, let earth her song begin. Let the round world keep triumph and all that is therein. Let all things seen and unseen, their note in gladness blend for Christ the Lord has risen. Our joy that hath no end. In life, it's normal as human beings to be riddled with fear and doubt, challenges, all those emotional difficulties that we experienced. Her, her pain, God meets her on an emotional level and her pain is changed to delight. And then there's an existential change that can take place as our death state can be changed into a life state. As the path toward destruction we can be detoured to the path to life. And then we have fear turning into faith. Christ's victory spills over into joy, which pours over into reconditioning, recommissioning, a mission to live for. A lot of people get up in the morning, they go to work, whatever their job might be. They might be a clergyman. They show up at their, their cathedral, their church. They, they do their shtick. Or they go to a factory, they work, they put parts together, they drive a, a taxi cab, they drive a truck, they perform surgeries, they adjust people's backs, they paint houses, whatever it might be. They go to work, they accomplish whatever their assignment is, they make some money, but there's no real life mission attached to it. It's you, you're born, you work, you go to Cuba once in a while, lay on a beach, you come back, eventually you go into a nursing home and you die. There's no mission. There's no purpose. But in Christ, we're given a purpose. So we can actually live as unto the Lord while we're doing surgery, while we're pastoring churches, while we're vacuuming the carpet. There's a commissioning. There's a mission that we've been given. And it's available not just to people that are really good at doing things for Jesus, but to everyone Check this out. Keep in mind again that Peter failed Jesus miserably. But on that first day, having revealed himself to Mary in the morning, he then goes and visits the disciples in the evening. Notice what he does in that very day. He doesn't go in and, hey guys, I'm here. Um, you guys all abandoned me when I was being arrested. 
Peter here denied me three times. I'm going to take the power that is in me to be raised from the dead. I'm going to destroy all of you. Does he do that? No, he, he recommissions them for ministry and he gives them power that's almost astonishing to think that they you know, were worthy of having. Check this out in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, it's like the doors are locked and suddenly Jesus is in the room. It's not because he's a cat burglar, but because he's God. It's right through the wall. He's in the room. And here's what he says. He says it to them twice. Think of their fear. Think of their angst. The doors are locked. They're concerned that the Jewish Gestapo are coming. And what, what does he say to them? Peace be with you. First thing out of his mouth, he grants them peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then this commissioning, or we could say a recommissioning. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This commissioning will be more fully given to the disciples in uh, Matthew 28. But this is the precursor to it. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then this is, this is incredible. They are actually given the powers that Christ possessed. These apostolic figures were given powers that regular human beings don't get. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It reminds me of the gospel narrative where Jesus says, if two or three are gathered together in my name, and that's a, that's a church discipline text. It's not about how many people it takes to form a church. But if you pronounce judgment upon a sinner, heaven will honor that is the teaching there. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's the same idea that the power of Christ is now channeled to these men to the point that they could declare someone forgiven or not forgiven. And it's not from them. It's their commissioning from Christ. He'd prophesied that he would rise and he did. He said he'd send his Holy Spirit and he did. He said he was the forgiver and he forgave. Here Jesus appears with words of peace, not chastisement, not condemnation to those that had abandoned him. It reminds me of Romans 8.1. You know it? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We should all want to be convicted when you come to church and you're like, I, I, I felt convicted, that's good, but never condemned. If you're a Christian, we don't preach to condemn because you have life in Christ and through Christ. But I, I do need to ask you this question. Could it be that you have a little bit of Peter in you right now? Could it be that maybe you have some unconfessed business with the Lord? Maybe you've denied him in public. Maybe you have failed to uphold his kingship over your life, your marriage, your family, your pocketbook. Could it be that you've betrayed him or you've denied him in some way, shape, or form? Ask forgiveness, and he is faithful and just to forgive us. The wonderful thing about serving Christ is we have a living, loving 
Lord at our disposal 24-7. An old preacher once told the story of a man who had come to faith in Christ in, in the continent of Africa. He'd come out of a false religion. He'd become a follower of Christ. And some of his friends said to him, why have you become a Christian? It's a good question. Why have you become a Christian? And he said, well, it's, it's kind of like this. Suppose you're going down a road and you suddenly come to a, a fork in the road and there's two directions that you can take and you don't know where you're going. But there's two guides, one to guide you in this direction and one to guide you in that direction. And you're, you're, you're glancing at these guides, but suddenly you realize one of these guides is dead and the other's alive. Well, clearly I'm going to follow the guide that's alive in the direction he wants to take me. And, and that's the analogy of biblical Christianity as opposed to false religion. There's a lot of guides out there. A lot of ideas and ideologies. Someone said to me a little while ago, how can you be a Christian? There's so many different views out there. Well, we could talk for hours about that, but let me just give you one. Our guide is still alive. And the guides that have founded other religions are still dead. And the ones that are currently alive that are teaching falsehood will one day die. But core to the biblical message is that we serve a living and a loving savior. In Christ, we encounter a savior that has laid death aside so that we could live. And that makes him a true maverick. He's truly distinct above all the other competitors in the world. Through him, we can leave this place filled with the knowledge of forgiveness, the sure hope of eternal life, in light of these truths, a renewed passion for worship and the desire to serve him all the days of our lives as he walks with us and we walk with him. So be encouraged by these words.